This Week at Hope Point. I just want to tell you, wherever you are today, you might possibly be never more closer in the center of the center of God's will, yet all around your life is chaos. And God is for you, and He's in it, and He's working, but for you, it is a time of chaos, as it was for Mary and Joseph. Since the night that Christ was born, endless powers have sought to bring the hope of Christmas to an end. Whether it is a political ruler in the first century or cultural movements in the 21st century, good news will always have its enemies. But take heart, friend, God's Son has come into the world. As the Christmas hymn proclaims, Jesus was Lord at His birth. The little child of Bethlehem was King of heaven and earth. The star that led the wise men is still shining. Darkness will be defeated. From the manger to the cross to the empty tomb, no power in heaven and earth can stop God from saving the world from sin. He brought Mary and Joseph through much chaos, and He will bring you through yours as well. On December 9th, just almost two weeks ago, a 49-year-old man climbed inside a 50-foot Christmas tree in the middle of uh, Midtown, New York, corner of 48th Street and 6th Avenue, and set it on fire. He was asked, destroyed the tree, $500,000 of damage. He was asked later that day when he was caught, investigators said, why'd you do it? He said, well, I've been thinking about it all day. <laughs> I have a feeling that morning that his mother told him, you are not getting a new iPhone for Christmas. Even though the tree was severely damaged, 10,000 ornaments and uh, 100,000 lights were destroyed, within three days it was replaced which was a reminder that there is no power on this world that can stop the lights of Christmas. But there will be many powers in the world that will try to stop Christmas, as we see today in Matthew 2, in the birth of Christ, King Herod attempting to kill Jesus even as a newborn. And I can hear it now, oh my goodness, Richard, this is Christmas Sunday. Are you really going to go dark on us? Oh, I know that Christmas is about purchasing presents and cooking food and rapping and music and love. And I just do want to remind you, there's another little aspect in there called Jesus. And his birth came at the expense of a very, very angry, angry ruler trying to end his life. His mission was so important that he was not only opposed by political powers and religious powers, but Jesus' arrival was opposed by the darkest of all powers, evil itself, whom we call Satan, whom the Bible also calls the dragon. When you think of the Christmas characters, you normally think of uh, parents arriving from Nazareth. You think of a baby born in Bethlehem, a cruel king in named Herod in Jerusalem, shepherds watching their flocks of sheep in a field, and wise men coming from Iran. But I just want to remind you at the outset of this uh, message today, there was another character, invisible to everybody in the Christmas story, but more present than anybody in the Christmas story. Revelation 12 calls him the dragon. Verse 4, the dragon stood in front of the woman, who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. 
Not enough time in this service today to really explore Revelation 12, but I allude to it just so you can have a framework in your mind that there was much more going on in Bethlehem that night than just shepherds and wise men and a happy mom and dad. There was a sinister force even working through King Herod, and that was the ancient dragon called Satan, enticing people to reject Christ and even to take his life. Now let's go to, to the manger, to Bethlehem, and meet the characters in the story. Matthew 2, 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. Matthew is pretty comfortable when he's writing by not giving us any details like who in the world are magi. So he doesn't tell us because he knew that his first century readers sort of knew who these guys were. But since you don't, we look to sources like the Greek uh, historian Herodotus who tells us that these guys were from a land far away called Persia, now modern day Iran, and about 970 miles away. They were worshipers of a religion called Zoroastrianism, had a little familiarity with Judaism. There was one God, and that God must be approached through blood sacrifice. Uh, they kept a perpetual flame burning. That was part of their religion. They were the scholars of the day. They were the doctors and the lawyers and the scientists and the mathematicians and the philosophers and the astronomers. They were very educated men. Kings throughout various empires um, in that time, used the, the Magi for uh, understanding wisdom, especially the revelation, the explanation of dreams. They thought that nobody would know more, nobody would know better than the wise men. So if you're reading the Christmas story, I ask the question, how in the world did a group of wise men from Tehran, 970 miles away, arrive in Bethlehem? How did they even know to come? Uh, you should ask that question. I certainly do. I have two guesses. One of them is God could have just told them. <laughs> there they are doing their, looking through their telescopes and writing down their math figures and doing their surgeries there in Tehran. And God said, hey, there's a baby born in Bethlehem. He's the Christ. Could have. God could do anything he wants. I would think, though, that it would make more sense if there was a little preparation before God's revelation. I think that's what happened. This is how, this is my guess. In 587 BC, um, Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem. And all of the Jews were, most of the Jews were exiled 900 miles away to Babylon. Um, among the Jews who were taken captive were four very bright Jews. You know these guys, Daniel, uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Well, for some reason, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, decided for these Jewish men who showed such learning and leadership capacity, I'm going to train them in Babylonian culture. And he did. They rose, because of their capacity for learning and leadership, they rose higher than all the other Babylonian men that had already been trained. And Daniel got a huge promotion. Daniel chapter 5 says he became, again, he became chief of all the magicians. That's chief of all the magi. 
Daniel became chief of all them. Now, if you know anything about Daniel, reading the book of Daniel, now remember this is taking place over five centuries before the birth of Christ. The dude was a stud, unbelievably courageous, stood up against all the powers of Babylon, did not let that culture affect his culture. So I'm believing that when he was in charge of all the Magi, he was doing the teaching. He was doing the discipling. He was doing the evangelizing, telling these Babylonian magicians, there is a Christ coming one day who's going to save the world. So therefore, when God spoke to them five centuries later, they were ready. They had something in their minds that had been transferred generation after generation about a coming Savior. Small principle from that, our responses to God will still be impacting the world 500 years years from now. Five centuries before Jesus came, Daniel, a Jew ripped from his homeland, deprived of his freedom, still was an evangelist for Jesus. He didn't need anything but courage to keep speaking the message. If there was a man who didn't want to hear the story of God, it was King Herod. The Bible says when King Herod heard about the birth of Christ, the birth of a king, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, you would think that King Herod and, and the city would be a little bit intrigued when these royal educators from faraway Iran rode in on their Arabian horses. There would be just a little bit of curiosity, maybe a little bit of joy. This is interesting, but there was none of that. It was all suspicion, and it was all fear, and it was going to soon be all rage. My preaching professor used to say it this way. Whenever Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Herod wakes up in Jerusalem. The good news always has its enemies. And it certainly did here. So here's the question. Why would King Herod, why would he give a rip about these guys from Iran riding into his town. I mean, he was part of the Roman Empire. They were not. Why would he care about what they had to say? A little history lesson might help you. At this particular time, the Roman Empire was obviously the empire of the world and pretty much represented by all the, the light gray. That's where the Roman Empire dominated. They were growing northward and westward, but to their east was a growing empire called the Parthians. The Parthians had already uh, taken over the old empire of the Persians, where is present-day Iran. So inside the Parthian empire still existed the purpose of these guys called wise men, magi. And their primary purpose was, in the Parthian Empire, the selecting of new kings. So even though they had no official reason for being in the Roman Empire, the fact that they were king-tellers is what caused Herod to be quite concerned. Herod and all the people of Jerusalem represent the fear that when King Jesus arrives, something is going to happen to my kingdom. And I don't want anything to happen to my kingdom, even if it's the good news of Jesus. The Magi came with this message. Uh, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
We really don't know a whole lot about the star. There's only one reference in all of the Old Testament to a star that might be an astronomical anomaly. It's not even a, a decent reference. Numbers 24, 17 just says a star will come out of Israel. Um, but for whatever reason, God used that verse in those guys' minds with, with more obvious divine revelation to tell them this is the time and this is the place. So they knew that the star had meaning. Herod was hoping the star had no meaning at all. So now he's going to bring in his own guys. Instead of listening to these astrologers from Iran, he's bringing in the religious elites from Jerusalem. When he, Herod, called together all the people's chief priests and teachers, these are all the seminary professors, he asked them, Where's the Messiah going to be born? Now, he's asking this question in, Herod, in Jerusalem where he lived. So they said, well, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has, 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 has written. I look at this verse and I say, this is another example where I always find it odd when a political leader decides to go Bible on us. This guy had no interest in the things of God, but all of a sudden now he's going to surround himself with men of Scripture and for his own purposes of uh, his own political safety, going to bring in the Bible guys and say, you guys know anything about the birth of a king? And it's amazing that instantly they quote this verse in the Old Testament written 700 years before Jesus was born, Micah chapter 5. You, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. I mean, it's interesting. He asked them this question, and they instantly know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt about it. And they turn to a small minor prophet book, one chapter, one verse in there. And they, yeah, Bethlehem. I mean, these guys probably had won, these religious scholars had won every Bible drill when they were little boys in Bible school, they knew exactly where Jesus was going to be born. They knew exactly in an obscure passage where to find it. Yet it's interesting that not one of these religious scholars ever left, ever left Jerusalem that night to go to Bethlehem. They missed it. They had all of the religious knowledge, and it concerns me a little bit for all of us in this culture, in this nation, having more religious knowledge than anybody in the world, and it's possible to have all of that knowledge and still miss Christ. Church is fun. Church is familiar. I know the stories. You can predict everything I'm going to say today. You just know it before I'm going to say it. You know the Christmas story, but it's possible to know this story and still miss Christ. Now Herod calls another meeting. He, remember, he went from Magi to religious scholars. Now he's going back to another meeting with the Magi. Herod called the wise men secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child as soon as you find him. Report that to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now this is where the story gets a little bit... Um, a little bit scary because he's seeking more information about the exact time of Christ. Was he born, you know, in January, March, 
you know, because so, he's wanting to find out what child does he have to kill. If I can find out when the star appeared, what night, well, that's the child I'm going to kill in that, in that time of his birth. It's a, you could tell the conversation is, 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 is sinister because it said he, 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 he asked for them to come secretly. Darkness hates the light. And normally dark conversations take place in the private when you don't want other people to know what you are talking about. It's remarkable in the verse 8. I just always find those words to be, I cannot believe, because you and I could not get them out of our mouth. Go find him so that I may come and worship him. When What he really means, go find him so that I may go and kill him. I mean, this is a man who's gained political office after political office by lying. So this lie is not hard for him to get out of his mouth. We can't even stomach it. Are you saying, how do you get that word out of your mouth? Y'all come back and tell me that I may worship him when actually I'm going to go kill him. But when you're used to lying, it's easy. And your conscience is no longer even bothered to interchange the words worship and murder. I don't know what these wise men knew, how sinister this was getting, but whatever it was, they decided it was time to leave because they were about a glorious mission. And so they took off. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were were overjoyed. Um, I think this is a very interesting thing that the star didn't move till they left Herod's palace. I mean, just God is smart. Why would he disclose the location of Jesus' birth? But I think there's also a principle here that they also had to leave before they're getting any more revelation that you have to leave the presence of evil before further light is made known to you. And I also love the fact that the purpose of creation, the purpose of all life, the purpose of all atoms and energy and time and space is to point to Jesus. And here you have a star moved by God to point. The stars themselves pointing, pointing to Christ. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and, 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 and myrrh. This is what happens when you finally see Christ for who he is. Everything within you moves toward him. No reluctance. No holding anything back. No deception. No, no halfway coming to him. No juggling, am I going to give you this and give you that. It's just everything. Your body's involved in it. You see people around here raising hands and some people kneel during songs. I'm not going to prescribe to you what your body should do when Christ is present and you see him. I can just tell you that when you truly see the king of glory, your body, your mind, your heart, your affections lunge in some way toward Christ.
you're like a child who's been riding in a car five hours to get to the ocean and the car pulls up to the hotel and they unpack and the child sees that water, that ocean, and runs. There's nothing casual in the heart of a child when he sees the ocean for the first time in his life. There's nothing casual in the heart of a man or a woman or a child when they see Jesus. It changes. He changes everything. If worship is not occurring in your heart when songs are being sung and teaching is going out, whatever that worship looks like, I don't know, but your affections will be moved all the way toward Christ. And it's, it's interesting. One thing I do want you to notice in this is that none of the gifts they brought were given to Mary. None of the adoration, none of the affection was for her. She's obviously the greatest mom in the world. She's obviously the mom in the world who's experienced the greatest pressure of all mothers. So we esteem her and respect her and and hope that this Christmas season will draw you to appreciate even more the tension she was under. But no gifts to her because she's not the big deal. It was her son, our Savior, who got the gifts, who got the worship, who got the attention and the affection. Nowhere in Scripture do we see Mary being venerated, Mary being worshipped. One of the wise men presented him with, with gold... Because that's what you do when you're in the presence of a king. Gold would be the most appropriate in that time. The gold would be the most appropriate thing that you could bring a king. And so when the wise men presented Jesus gold, it was a declaration from that king. You are the king of heaven and earth. You are the king of all other kings. So we bring you gold. Now the king we know that was in that manger. It's interesting. <laughs> There he was, nursing at his mother's breast, relying on her milk, wrapped in a diaper, swaddling clothes, the king of the universe in a manger, in a diaper for your salvation. That king would one day grow to be a man and would allow Roman soldiers to nail him to a cross, or he would die for the world's sin. And the other two gifts that were brought by the Magi represented God's statement also about who was in the manger. One of the king brought myrrh. It was an embalming fluid. Very odd to go to a baby shower and bring a gift that says the child will die. But it was a statement by God that this child was born to die for the sins of the world, to die for everybody in this room. So we bring him myrrh. One of the kings brought him frankincense. This is a beautiful fragrance of incense used by all the priests that whenever an offering was made to God into the nostrils of, the, of God in heaven was a pleasing aroma of incense. Incense filled every house that was used with a fragrant aroma. And it was an indication that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, was the first human to ever die, that God was pleased with his sacrifice that could truly atone for the sins of the world. God was pleased. There was an aroma of pleasure that Christ could die and had died for the sins of the world. 
So this was the destiny of the king in the manger. But you should not fear when you look in the manger knowing the destiny of this child. Because he would die, but he would rise from the dead. And in his rising from the dead, he would conquer the thing that most of us fear the most. And that is death. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. Those little arms will one day wrestle with the monster death and destroy it. Those little feet shall step on the serpent's neck and crush it. As I said before, those wise men probably had figured out what Herod was up to, but just in case, God told him exactly what was going on. Matthew 2.12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, it's amazing how many dreams are part of the Christmas story. This is dream number four. They returned to their country by another route, and now it's time for another dream because just as they got warned, the father of Jesus would have to be warned as well. When the wise men had gone, in verse 13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. The word escape in this uh, passage comes from the Greek word um, foige, from from which we get our word fugitive. Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus are fugitives on the run from King Herod who's trying to take the child's life because the spirit of the dragon is in Herod and the spirit of the dragon always wants for Christ to die. Whether Jesus is a nursing baby or a miracle working teacher, the kings of the world regard him as a threat to their kingdom. To all who are filled with the spirit of the dragon, Jesus is not a beautiful baby nor a beautiful savior. He is an enemy. You know, there's nothing more exciting for parents when a child is born to pack everything up at the hospital, place that child for the first time in the car seat, and drive home. And normally there at the house, there's goofy people like excited grandparents other family members, friends, and it's the celebration continues, but not so with Mary and Joseph. They were not going home. They have this child. They're in Bethlehem. They can't go back to Nazareth. They have to flee because somebody's trying to kill their child. This is what I wrote down at the beginning of Christmas, December, that I want our people, I said, I want our people at Hope Point this year to appreciate more than ever the tension that Mary and Joseph were under in order to do the will of God. I want you to feel that this Christmas season. As Charles Spurgeon says, we cannot expect to serve the Lord and yet have an easy time of it. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. You can just see in this passage chaos. Matter of fact, I just highlighted some words so you could see Joseph, dad, wanting to be the provider. He got up. 
took the child and his mother during the night, had to escape, go to Egypt, to a place he had no idea where he was going. God knew where he was going. It's pretty cool how God worked this out. We don't know exactly where they, where they lived in Egypt, but let me just share this with you before, before I tell you that answer. I think some of you tonight, uh, today, can appreciate what was going on in that night in, in, in this family's life. These were, this was a mom and dad that were fully surrendered to the Lord. They had given their hearts to God. They were all about doing the will of God, and yet their life is filled with pure chaos. Look at the chaos. Somebody's after their child, having to leave home, not knowing exactly where they're going. I just want to tell you, wherever you are today, you might possibly be never more closer in the center of the center of God's will, yet all around your life is chaos. And God is for you, and he's in it, and he's working. But for you, it is a time of chaos, as it was for Mary and Joseph. Don't be discouraged by the chaos. That is where God was at work to save, to save the world. So where did they go? They said they went to Egypt. Well, in all likelihood, they went to Alexandria. When, <clears throat> when Greece was under, when Alexander the Great had dominated Greece, he, for some reason, preserved the city of Alex Alexander as a refuge, a place for Jews to live. In fact, by the fourth century, a million Jews were living in Alexandria. It was a 75-mile journey from Bethlehem to the border, and from there another 100 miles to the interior to live in Alexandria. And you have to ask the question, what did Mary and Joseph live on financially? <laughs> yeah, the gold. The gold and the frankincense and the myrrh could be sold in any market along the way. And all of a sudden, those products that looked sort of irrelevant gifts for a newborn all of a sudden became most relevant and most practical. Interesting how God provided a city for them to live in and money to live on, and they knew nothing about it until it happened. I like how Frank Peretti says it. When you're the storyteller, you know things the people in your story don't know. God knew God knew, and he knows what he knows tomorrow for you. He knows next year for you. He's the storyteller, and you're going to walk into all the provisions that seem like right now, how in the world will this work out? When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Herod had not been outwitted by the Magi. He had been outwitted by God. And therefore, his anger was against God. And so, he just began killing. There's no way in the world he had to kill babies from two years down. But he had to start somewhere, so he said, I'll just expand my margin. Because when you are 
have already made a decision that this life doesn't matter, then all of a sudden you can make a decision that this life doesn't matter. And for him, it didn't matter. No lives mattered. No children mattered. I'll just kill them all and start with two years old and down. Men will do anything to rid themselves of Jesus. Anything to crush his holy cause. This is the hardest part of the Christmas story, no doubt. But it's part of the Christmas story. But here's the reason I wanted to include it in today's message. Just so you would understand. I've never heard anybody say this. Anybody have a comment about the death of these little boys? As did an, a pastor writing, writing in Manchester, England in 1850. Alexander McLaren. These boys... They died for the Christ whom they never knew. These lambs were slain for the sake of the lamb who lived while they died so that by his death they might live forever. They were the first martyrs. Those little boys were the first martyrs for Jesus Christ and they are around his throne now in heaven and forever because he died for them. Now, why do we take time to read such a hard passage? Because I want you to have a response the next time when somebody says, Christianity is the cause of pain in the world. You hear that all the time. Christianity is the cause. No. The cause of the pain in the world is when people oppose Christianity. The world increases its pain as it tries to reject the purposes of God. Christ did not cause this. Herod caused the pain. Matthew 2.19, we'll end with this. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And that's why we call him Jesus of Nazareth. The most famous name in all of history, in, in, in history, Jesus of Nazareth, because of this verse. He went home back to live in Nazareth. And out of all the places that God would now pick, he picked the worst possible village. A nothing town. A rustic village filled with uneducated people, half of them Jew, half of them Gentile, and others mixed. It was a place that was despised. Everybody looked down upon Nazareth, which is why exactly that's where the king of the universe said, and that's where I want to call home. So that I can identify with everybody in this world that feels like they live in Nazareth. Rejected by the world. All around the globe today, we're trying to reach people who live in obscure villages and slums that the world says you are nothing. And Jesus Christ says, that's where I would live. If I were choosing a birthplace today, and that's why we go, to tell those people to the ends of the earth, you so very much matter to God. You can see in the opening line here a reference to the death of Herod. That is a huge statement. You know, there's five Herods in the, in the Bible, and every time I preach on them, I get confused. Which one are we talking about? There's, there's tons of Herods. 
This one is Herod the Great. And I look at this verse, I say, well, Herod the Great right now is not so great. This is the theme of history. Kings die and Jesus lives. The dragon is thrown into the lake of fire and Jesus sits on his throne forever. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.